My name is Brandon. I am the pastor of Preaching and Vision here at, um, at Sojourn Heights. We, uh, as you know, have been going through a series in 1 Timothy, and, and today we're going to wrap up that series and close it out, so I just want to get started. Uh, depending, on, uh, depending on your background, right, the home you grew up in, the, the childhood that you had, where you went to college, right, did you go to A&M? That's not acceptable, okay? Uh, did you go to Baylor? Did you go to... Uh, you know, I, I don't know, name another college in te- Texas. Did you go to Texas? What background did you come from? Like, this is, um, th- there's going to be some, some things that are very different about my background and about your background, uh, but there's going to be some things that, irrespective of culture, context, home, where we grew up, that are going to be the same. And one of the things that I think is a, um, is a universal reality, is that we, we're all living, we, we all live to some degree uh, uh, or another, uh, what I call this fluid illusion, uh, right? So we, we're all living a bit of an illusion. So we've got the real us, right? We've got the me, we've got the me that I know that I am, and then I've got the me uh, that I'm holding up that I want people to think that I am. And that's, it's fluid because uh, depending on uh, who you're with, it, it changes, right? Between personal expectations, social expectations, what you think will impress someone. So let me, uh, let me, let me give you a, uh, an example. I am 37, uh, and until I was 24 or 25, if you would have asked me, hey, did you play football in school? I would have said, yeah, yeah, man, I, I played some quarterback, in fact. Um, and what I mean by that is that I was the seventh grade B team, third string quarterback, all right? Like, I didn't, I didn't, no, I'm not outright lying. I'm just kind of shading the truth, right? And we all do this. And the place that we all do this almost universally is on our first date, okay? All of us, right? You want to you hear the story about Amanda and I on our first date? Amanda and I, I I'm a youth pastor. I make 19 grand, uh, and I uh, I frequent taquerias because it's all that I can afford. And uh, and I want to impress Amanda. And so I'm like, hey, hey, you want to go to P.F. Chang's? Uh, and so we, uh, I thought, man, this will seal it up right there. And so uh, we go to P.F. Chang's. And true story, um, after uh, dinner, walking out to the car in the parking lot, I'm thinking to myself, okay, $50 plus the $25 overdraft charge. And so I looked at her and I said, hey, Amanda, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed you. I'd really like to do this again, but I'm going to need like a buy one, get one free or a coupon or something like that. Oh, now all the ladies were upset right there and offended for my wife. I, I love my wife. And she said yes, and we're done, all right? And so that, that's our first date. And at some point, right, whether it's a date, whether it's some silly junior high story, right, we've, we've all been guilty of this. Uh, on some level, at some point, every one of us has shaded the truth about us to try to impress the person that uh, we're talking to. And in First Timothy, and in First Timothy, these false teachers—if you remember what, what's happened—is these false teachers, contrary to Jesus, had slipped into the church, and these false teachers were living the ultimate illusion. And uh, they—they appeared. Like, they were there to serve and to benefit the church when the entire time they were there for their own gain, to gain what they could from these people. This was the ultimate illusion. And and here's why this text is so relevant for us. This is why this text is so relevant for us. That just being in this room right now, 
even being here can be a form of an illusion. Even being in this room right now, right here among us, can be a form of an illusion where Jesus dominates your Sunday and has nothing to do with your Tuesday. And Timothy, this letter to Timothy, it's going to wrap up saying, not here, not in this house, not inside this family. So let's get started. Verse 3, it's going to start out um, attacking these false teachers, giving a little commentary on them. It says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So in this, in this commentary, in this intro little commentary on these false teachers, he, um, he, he gives a bit of a diagnosis about uh, where it is, but what, what he brings up is something that I think we all, every one of us in this room needs to hear, right? So um, these false teachers, they, they don't agree with the teaching of Jesus because the teaching of Jesus comes with it standards by which they should live, right? Markers of godliness. And, and here's, here's what this holds up for us. Almost no one, almost no one would say, I don't believe in Jesus because he contradicts himself. Almost everyone would say this if they're honest, myself included. I, I don't believe Jesus or I don't believe in Jesus because he contradicts me. He contradicts the way I want to live. So I set right and wrong, and Jesus cannot challenge that. So I have the way that I want to live. Jesus cannot speak into that. And when he can't speak into it, when he can't challenge that, it leads down one of two roads. Let's keep reading. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And so when Jesus can't challenge you, when, when, when you set right wrong for you, and you set Jesus over here, and you say you can't speak into this, it's going to take you down one of two roads. The first road is it's going to lead you to a life of comparison. Right? Look, look at verse 4. That, that list, you don't have to actually look at it right now, but if you want to, that list in verse 4 is a DNA of a life lived in comparison to other people. Right? Dissension, slander, envy. This is my life is good, bad, right, wrong in comparison to the person over there. It's, it's the life of comparison. The second road is going to be to use religion or to use Jesus as a means of gain. So let's talk comparison first. Let's talk comparison first. So this teaching of Jesus, it, it, it leads to a life that looks like Jesus, but the teaching of Jesus isn't just moral teaching. Right? It's not just, hey, go do this. It's, hey, I... I've done this, I'm going to do this for you, and now because of this, go and live like this. And so part of the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, is what Jesus says about you. And if what Jesus says about you isn't enough, 
you will search in desperation for approval in what other people say about you. Every one of us. If the words of Jesus about you are not enough, you will become needy and desperate for the words of approval of the people around you. The problem is eventually that crashes. Eventually that crashes and it leads you down the second road of religion, Jesus becoming a means of gain. And so it, it might not be where it was in the original context. It was in these, these false teachers' um, monetary gain that they're talking about. It might not be monetary gain for us, but what it might be is the church is now my dating pool. Why, why, do, I, why do I go to Sojourn? Uh, because there's a lot of single people there. And like I, I want Christians to marry Christians, and I want this to be the first place that we search for a spouse. But underlying motives have got to be addressed in your own life because we're not just here to get a spouse. We're here to see Christ cultivated in you. That's only the first of the offensive things that I'm going to say today, so just get ready. If it's not dating pool, maybe it's, maybe it's parents. Right? Maybe it's the church's job is to provide this blown out whatever so that they can be the parent of my children to raise my children for me. This is using the church as a means of gain. It might just be a place to check the religious box, right? I, I know my life. I, I know who I am. I know how I feel about myself. Um, I don't want to feel this way about myself. How can I fix that? Well, I can just show up um, at a church gathering on a Sunday and stop feeling this way about myself because I, I think that I've done the religious thing. It's not working. You know it, and I know it. Now, here's the, now here's the challenge. Living a life of comparison Seeing the church as gain, it, admittedly, it's incredibly hard to know if this is you, right? It, if, we're, if I'm honest, if you're honest, if we just kind of collectively had a counseling session and said, let's be honest together, it is incredibly difficult to know, is this me, is this not me? And so how, how do we figure out, do, do I feel like, is this talking about me? Verse 5 actually, I think, gives us a clue as to how we can figure out if this is us. Look back at, at the end of verse 5. It says, imagining... Right, constant friction, people who are depraved of the mind and truth, imagining, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So here's the question. This is the DNA diagnostic, is this me question for you. Do, do you find yourself consistently imagining life as it could be? Right? Are, are you never present where you are because you are consistently imagining my life could look like this if I just had this. Does that mark your life? I think that's the DNA diagnostic question that we need to ask because if so, you have created an illusion. Right? You've created an imagination, an illusion, a life that you think you want or that you think you need and you will use people and you'll use the church as a means to get it. And now Timothy, uh, this letter to Timothy is going to expose it for what it is, verse 6. But godliness with contentment, godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. You see, here's what Timothy, or Paul, who wrote this letter to Timothy, is saying. He's saying the, the illusionary life is a discontent life. Right? I'm, I'm not satisfied, God, with the life that you've given me, and so I want that life. My, my life is not enough. I, I don't like my, you name it, and I want that life. And I, I think I need to pause here, and I need to say some things out of grace and love for this family, for this Sojourn Heights family. I need to say some things that might be offensive to some of us. It seems like, it seems like, the Bible's standard of living is much lower than most of ours. And let me, let me tell you the first place this penny started dropping for me was in this move over the last three weeks that my family has been going through where my wife would consistently not say the Bible standard of living is lower than yours, Brandon, but in other language would be saying, hey, there's some entitlement inside of your heart that needs to be dealt with. There's something inside of you that feels entitled, and I'm your wife, and I can see it. And there was never a point where I enjoyed that conversation. It was awful. I don't ever want to do it again. I'm going to need to do it again. I don't want to ever do it again. But underneath that, what, what she was saying is this. The Bible's standard of lower the standard of living, Brandon, is lower than yours. And that has to be challenged. Often we, we say these words, um, and I don't mean we like culturally. And if you're a visitor, I, th- this is your first time here among us, th- this might have nothing to do with you. Uh, this might absolutely not be true in your life. But as the pastor and one of the pastors here of Sojourn Heights, this is true in our life. Here, we say the word need way too much. I think if Paul were here, who wrote this letter, he would say, you use the word need way too loosely, and he would probably say, you need to replace the word need most of the time with the word want. Not I need, I want. And listen, there is, on the surface, nothing wrong with saying, I I want these things. But what we need What you need, what I need, is what will benefit us in 10,000 years, and all of that can be found in Christ. All of it. All of it. And listen, let me say it again. There is is nothing inherently wrong with saying, I want a yard. I want another bedroom. I want a better job, a you name it. There, there's nothing wrong inherently with saying, I want. We left our apartment and moved to a house because we were able to rent for cheaper, thus the Lord, an extra bedroom. Like that was a factor. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if we only think their need, if we can never say, I want these things, if we only say, I need these things, then we will never be honest about the heart level motivations that are sitting inside of that. Because we're creating an illusion for ourselves. Until we can be honest and acknowledge these are I want, we can never 
um, we will never lay our honest motivations before the Lord and say, Lord, I need to put these before you. It won't happen. The DNA, the DNA of a discontent life is that because Jesus isn't the thing that we really want, because Jesus isn't the thing that we really want, everything else becomes something we need. But the DNA of a content life is when Jesus becomes what you truly want, he also becomes the only thing that you truly need. This is why parishes are our neighborhood parishes where we live life together are so important that we need more than Sunday to Sunday because listen, I, I, I can deceive myself about my heart motivations. And if I can deceive myself, you bet I can deceive you. And I need community. I need men and women around me to look into my life and to reveal and expose and speak into what's really going on on the inside. And so the root of this illusion is discontentment. And now, and now he's going to make a left turn and he's going to say that there's a pretty timeless symptom of discontentment. Let's keep going. But those who, but those who desire to be rich, those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so what is the symptom of the discontent life, this timeless standard, this timeless symptom? It's greed. Simply greed, the desire to be rich and the love of money. This is what it is in, in listen to me greed listen if you, if you give your life to greed if you if you say hey here's this thing i like i know it i know it and i'm going after it greed will take you by the hand and walk you away from the faith greed will take you by the hand and walk you away from the faith. And the, the people who are most susceptible to that are the ones who heard that and said, man, not me. At least I don't have to worry about greed in my life. There's a the thing about money. It, 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 promises, um, it promises to fix what's broken, but it's like treating cancer with Advil. It can minimize the pain. It, it can make you feel for a moment like you don't have cancer, but it has no power to heal what's actually broken on the inside. That is the power to blind us, and it has tentacles that will reach. Greed has tentacles. Look at the word evils. Evils in verse 10. Is that singular or plural? Plural. It is all kinds of evils. It, it will un unleash greed into your life and it will ruin every aspect of your life. I mean, it will go systematically one by one. You want to wreck your marriage? Give your life to greed. You, you want to be an absent father? Give your life to greed. You want to be an abusive roommate? Give your life to greed. And so let's talk parishes again because we're, we're again, we're, 
we're, we're, we're blind on, on a lot of levels to the real motivations of our heart and the role of parishes is to unblind us. It's to unblind us as to what's really going on. Often in our parishes, we, we think, hey, I want to, um, I'm here and I, you know, man, I just love these people and I want to talk heart and life and I want to know how you doing and how are you doing and how are you doing. But, but when it comes to money, right, when it comes to somebody in my parish um, asking me, hey, Brandon, t- talk about your finances. Um, man, how, how much do you give? What, where do you give to? How, how much do you save? Um, what, how much money do you spend going out to eat? There, there's kind of this, oh, okay, wait a minute. Like, I'll, I'll talk search engine history, but, um, but man, money, that's kind of my gig, right? Like, you don't talk to me about my money. Like, I spend what I want to spend. And, um, and, and the problem with that is, you want to know the best way we can talk heart with one another is to talk money with one another. It's why the elders have pause. It's why our church practices 100% transparency when it comes to finances. You want to know anything about finances at Sojourn? Email Drew Knowles. 100% transparency. It's why my budget is at any moment, at any time, bear before the elders. It's why all of the elders' budgets are at any moment, at any time, bear before one another. And you want to know a bad idea? Let me tell you a bad idea. A bad idea is me and my wife sitting down, thinking through major life decisions around finances alone. That's a bad idea. You know why it's a bad idea? Now, I know it's a, it's a natural idea, right? Like it's my family's business and my family, my wife and I. But you know, you know who's blind to the greed inside of my heart and whether or not it's pinging up inside of my heart? I, me. You want to know the easiest person to sway? My wife. Now, not because she has a backbone like crazy. I sometimes wish she had less of a backbone, all right? But she's my wife. I, I need my parish, my community. I, I need these men and women. When it comes time to make life decisions, I, I need them to speak into it on the front end. That's why when we were looking, do we buy, do we rent, and we're leaving here, I, I, multiple, I don't, Adam will tell you if it's true or not. He's my parish leader. Uh, we drove by houses together. He, he looked at um, the dollars of the house. I, I took people with me to go look at the house that wasn't just because I'm lonely. Don't get me wrong, I'm pretty lonely, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's kind of true. It's very true, actually. We're all going to have lunch afterwards. Uh, listen, no, no one's escaped this reality of, of struggling with a discontent life and struggling with greed. And the reason that no one in this room has escaped that reality is because no one across the globe has escaped this reality. You know why? Genesis 3, at the heart of the fall, what, what did Adam want? What, Adam and Eve, they were discontent with the life they had, and they were greedy for the life they didn't have. No one's escaped it. This is the heart of the fall, and it's affected all of us. All of us. But we can't just tell someone, right, be content or don't be greedy. That's like saying to someone with the flu, just get well. We need a solution that's going to get to the core of it. Let's keep reading. But as for you, as for you, and here we're about to have, I don't know what that means, but whatever that is, that's what's about to happen. 
But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called, in which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now listen to this. So this is what we're to do. Instead of this, do this. Now verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. What confession is he talking about? He's talking about Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. And after this, he was led to the cross. And in the cross, here's what happened. The king of the Jews, the king of the world, the one who possessed everything, set it aside and became poor in the cross so that you might be rich in him. He gave it all up. Left heaven, left the Father, came to earth, died on the cross, left it all so that 2 Corinthians 8 9 could one day be written. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, so that you might by his poverty become rich in him, in him. That Jesus' poverty on the cross cuts at the core of our need for riches in this life because if you have him, you are already rich. If you want contentment in your life, if you want to cut greed at the core of your life, you don't need five steps to generosity. You need this to be the marrow of your life. You need he who was rich became poor in the cross so that you who are poor might become rich in him. And when that becomes the marrow of you, of you, Jesus' life becomes your life, and Jesus' future becomes your future. Let's keep reading. I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings, and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom, has, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and dominion. Amen. Amen. At the appearing of Jesus, when, when Jesus is the hope of your life, Right? When, when, when you've gone to war with discontentment and greed, not out of a moral conformity to how you're supposed to live in a Western society, but when you've gone to war with it at the, through the and with the poverty of Christ in the cross, his future becomes your future. And it has the power to break chains today. His, and it's all in verse 16. Verse 16, five things. At the appearing of Christ, we will share in his immortality. 
What is unapproachable will be approachable. What is unseen will be seen. We will share in his honor and glory. And with Christ in fulfillment of Genesis 1, we will have and share dominion over the whole of the earth. You want to cut the power of greed in your life? Here's how. Let the imagination of your life not be someone else's life today, but your life in him then. Let the governing imagination of your life, let the illusion that you're chasing, let that imagination, let it not be the life of the lawyer next to me. Let it be the life that I'm going to have at the return of Christ. That will cut to the core. You see, you will no longer be discontent because what you need is no longer what someone else has but what you're going to have at the return of Christ. It'll cut at the need for, or it'll cut at greed in your life because you're no longer consumed with trying to achieve more and get more and gain more because you will have him and you will have all of this, verse 16, at his return. And you can live out now the rest of the text and you can live out the closing of this book. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. All right, he's saying don't buy the illusion. But on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. If you have Christ, you are already rich. If you have Christ, you have all that you need. And so here's where Timothy closes the letter. He's, he's walked through life in this household of God, life, life inside this family, and he closes the letter with things like, be generous, don't be haughty, be humble, be rich in good works. Hey, hey take what you have, share it. Hey, look, don't, don't get into irreverent babble and irreverent nonsense. Why would he close the book like this? Because... Jesus, who was sent by the Father, who lived completely obedient to the Father, out of humility gave himself generously for us in the cross. So that, so that in Christ he might create this church, this household, that we might be marked by these things. And this is, this is, Thousands upon thousands of years of history unfolding where 800 years ago there were people in a room like us sitting around here listening to someone pre-mic so it was probably smaller and I was higher saying, what if we were marked by these things? Like what, what if... What if these things, these things in Timothy, this kind of generosity, submission, humility, rich in good works, 
What if these things marked us? And 800 years ago, there was somebody standing up saying, hey, it's our chapter. Listen, this is global, redemptive story in here, somewhere, not Alabama, no one was there yet, the Middle East, Northern Africa, someone was standing up saying it's our chapter, this is our chapter in the story, and now today we are here, 2,000 years after this was written sitting in a room saying, in Houston, Texas, this is our chapter. This is our chapter in the story. What if, what if we were marked by these things? What if these things marked us as the people of God? Like what, what if we weren't known for our building? What, what if we weren't known for a personality? What if we were known as a people who were generous, who freely shared with one another and with our city? What if we were known as a people rich in good works, known as a people who are here to serve our neighborhood and to serve our city? What, what if, what if one day, what if one day there were so many neighborhood parishes in this greater heights, northern Houston region of the city that we're in, and one day so many churches in this larger Sojourn Houston family that we're a part of, that no one, that no one could escape the reality of Jesus in their life. What if? This is our chapter to live out the book of Timothy for the good of one another, for the good of our city, and for the glory of Christ our Savior. Let's pray.